Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child using the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Mecki Lozano. During the months of August and September of 2021, we are on our season break. We will begin season two in October of 2021 with some really amazing episodes that we have planned for you. So for today, we would like to rebroadcast one of our favorite episodes from the last year and a half of having this podcast. Today, I'm going to share with you episode 13 from June 10th of 2020, when we had Elizabeth Calancini on the podcast to speak into the mystery of the infant child, that zero to three-year-old, to speak into who this child is and their capacities to know God, but also to reveal God. This is a really beautiful episode. You're going to know why it's one of my favorites really soon. If you are interested in the formation that we have now for the infant toddler atrium, you can go on the CGS USA website under the learn drop down, click on find a course, and then click specifically on the, the level T formation is what you want, which is the toddler formation. And it will give you a very short list because they are rare formations, but it will give you a short list of the formations that are in progress or that will be coming up soon. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. We are very honored and glad that you are here with us today. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for inviting me. Elizabeth, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd? Sure. Um, I took my Casa de Bambini training after graduating from college. And then during my first six years of teaching the little ones, I took the assistance to infancy training over a couple of summers. And at the end of that six years, I went to Bergamo and took my 6 to 12 elementary Montessori training and this was a Catholic Montessori school so they had a prayer table and some of the catechesis materials and I slowly began to take the catechesis formation as well through those years. Kept going back to the catechesis formation over and over again. Um, Eventually became a level one formation leader and and then in 2014, Rebecca asked if I'd give a breakout session about the littlest ones at the 60th anniversary in Arizona because mm-hmm. she knew that at the school in Virginia, we were working with the toddlers in the toddler environment and had been looking at this and experimenting and so forth. So that began this particular part of the journey. So, mm-hmm. And so now... You work with people who are interested in being formed specifically in the infant-toddler atrium, is that correct? Yes. So out of that came a request from someone abroad. Would you share this information with us? Um, We heard you're doing this work. And it turned into a sort of informal formation, if you will. And Mm -hmm. then the desire to continue sharing it turned it into what is now known as seminal infant-toddler catechesis or level T on the website. So it's, it's still very seminal and emerging, and mm-hmm. it has its roots in, oh, I think it has its roots in the beginning, <laughs> and that becomes clear to me every time I think about it. But really, if we go back to Dr. Montessori's vision for the child and that early 
assistance to infancy work. And then there's Sophia herself and Jonna and their writings and their work. And you really see the seeds of what this is and what it's becoming in all of their writings. It's been there all along. Um, how could it not be? You know, especially when you think of their rich experience with the three to six-year-olds. And Sophia was well known to give this answer to those who asked, you know, about the adolescent. Yes, there here are some hints about the adolescent, but this must go younger first. Mm -hmm. um, so when she was asked in an interview for Essential Realities, what do you hope for the future of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd? She said that it will go younger and younger. Mm -hmm. And I was, I only met her once and near the end of her earthly life. And I was one of the people that she said that to. <laughs> so oh, wow. who knew that this day would come? Um, but it's, it's been a wonderful journey. Well, I'm really excited to learn from you more about the infant toddler and how we serve them with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, because this is one area of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd that I really know very little about. And, um, I, besides having had infant toddlers myself, that's the only experience that I have. Let's start at the beginning. Who is the infant toddler? That's a huge question it is. <laughs> for a little <laughs> tiny person. Um, they're such a mystery. They're the greatest mystery, of course, being the youngest. And they are the ones that lead the way, mm -hmm. that help us discover, just as with every level of the catechesis help us discover what this work is who they are most importantly um, and in the discovery of who they are we come to know ourselves better as well mm. and we come to know the good shepherd better so it almost seems easier to start with the environments um, mm. so what is the environment how how do we change the environment to serve that child so to first recognize who they are and what their environments are, it's a little different in this age group. So what are the environments we have for the child in level one, two, and three? We have a set atrium environment that looks different in every culture and setting, but it's still, we know that canon well by now. You know, what would that environment contain? And um, that it's a place of prayer with particular materials lifting up these themes of liturgy and scripture. For the littlest ones, it's different because what could we say is their first atrium, their first physical environment? The womb. The womb. So we have the womb, the home, the church, and then we also have a possibility of having, and this is a part of this that really needs to be enfleshed even further, a nido atrium. That's the Italian word for little nest. And when you take the assistance to infancy AMI course, you learn about that environment as well as a toddler environment. So a nido would be for children who are just sitting up or even scooting or crawling, but not yet walking steadily. Mm. And then the toddler environment is for children who are walking steadily, able to hold something up to age three. Mm -hmm. So about 14, 16 months to age three. So we're really looking at four or five different physical environments, um, which is a little different than the other levels where we have 
the church, the domestic church of the home, and then the the atrium for the child. And I think, you know, during this time of the virus, we've seen this rise of the domestic church, which is really beautiful. And that recognition, again, of the parents as the first catechists. Mm -hmm. And that's most particularly true for the children of age zero to three. In this seminal formation, it's important that we find ways, if the parents aren't in the formation or the grandparents of the children, to share with them this content. So it's it's a little different than the other levels in that respect, in that the parents are these catechists, but there's also catechists that can prepare an environment outside the home, just like we have in level one, two, and three for the young children, mm-hmm. potentially two different environments. So am I hearing you correctly that for the infant toddler, you are you have the parents in the room with you working with the children or you're asking the parents separately to to work with the children in their homes or is it both? Well, all of that is possible. So there's a range of different ways this can look. Certainly we want the parents to know what they might consider offering in the home. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. So we look at what could you offer to the child in the womb? What could you offer to the child in the home? Mm. And what could you offer to the child in an external atrium environment like we have for the other levels? And the parents, when they come to those external environments, yes, very often it's important to have the parents with them. Not necessarily the catechist that's working with them, but with the child, because that's a time when they still have a need to be fed by their mother, perhaps, or to be changed, so forth. So all of that is part of this, their meals and their toileting and so forth. So it's helpful to have the parents there, but it's also a beautiful thing to have the parent there because we're not, we want the parent to be a witness to this as well, and perhaps even a participant in it, depending on how you set it up. This is really up to each individual who enters into this work. You know, do I have the parent catechizing their own child in the environment the whole time? Or do I have them sitting to the side observing and their child is free to separate from them when they're ready and enter into the environment? And then the trained catechist works with the child. There are different possibilities, but the main part of it is really to look at who is this child? What Mm -hmm. should this environment be like? And speaking with one of the catechists who's going into her fourth or fifth year of doing this now, and she said, you know, most of the time it doesn't require that much work on our part. The children are so independent and they'll even help each other that we can sit and observe. So, um, but she's been working with the other catechists that's working with her for that same number of years. They had the formation in, in the U.S., which was in Iowa. You know, those are choices that you make, but it's really beautiful to see that if you have an area set to the side of one of these external atrium environments, The parents can sit there with the child and there's a shelf with some of the materials they need and the child can choose when they separate from the parent Mm -hmm. and go explore the wider environment, so to speak. And the parent has that opportunity to observe and to be in prayer and parents in settings like this have said it's so peaceful. It's just a nice time to be there in prayer with their child, whether it's at a distance or not. That's really beautiful. It sounds like it's very respectful of each of the children at that very vulnerable age, um, where wherever they their needs are, 
in regards to their needs with their mother or their father. And it also is so neat because it, like you said, it encourages that domestic church a little bit where some parents feel inadequate or they don't know how by just bringing them into this, this infant toddler atrium, you're almost giving them some of the tools. These like, see how beautiful and simple this is and feeding them as well. That's really beautiful. I really like that. Me too. And it's, it draws on all those rich traditions of our faith too, that maybe came from our grandparents or our great grandparents and our own parents. And how, how do we offer that most essential food to the youngest? Mm -hmm. So knowing who they are, going back to the question you asked me before is, is important. <laughs> who, who is the youngest child? So we know that the most important thing is relationship that they come already in relationship and they desire to have this relationship nurtured. And how is that nurtured? Through their activity, through movement and through language and through what we offer to them. Because they're the youngest, we have to look at what is most essential. So what is even more essential than what we offer in level one? Mm. So if we take those same great themes, and say, how can we offer them in an even more essential way? So that's, that's the work that we were really doing at the school in Virginia is looking at all three levels of the catechesis and saying, what are these themes? What is a way to offer these most essential imprints, this most essential language, these most essential experiences to the very youngest? And what did you find? Well, we found that because they're in the sensitive period for movement, they notice movement. So some of the things that we noticed they gravitated towards very early on are particular ways of moving, such as processing. They love to process. <laughs> so what does that call on us as the catechist to provide something to process with? Mm -hmm. And where have they noticed this processing? In the liturgy. And what do they see being processed with? What's the biggest, most notable articles that are being processed with, the crucifix, the Holy Bible. So how do we offer something to them that's the right size for them so that they can do this too? So one of the materials we have is the small San Damiano crucifix like you'd have in your baptism corner on a pole in a stand next to the prayer table. Mm -hmm. What do we see in terms of the language? If we think of the young child, the three to six-year-old and saying counter words, and how carefully we offer them this rich language of scripture and liturgy with the youngest child, one word is a precious pearl. One word is such a treasure that they will take it in and hear that one word over and over again, matched with that article. So we have some articles from the mass, just like we'd have in the sacristy cabinet mm -hmm. and articles for the sacrament of baptism in beautiful boxes. And they learn the names of those articles just one at a time. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen over time is around age two or two and a half, the children will start to take them and set them like they're setting an altar table mm -hmm. because there's been that absorption of what they yeah. see at mass or what they see. But again, we don't give them that same presentation that you would receive in level one. So we don't give them altar one, two, and three, but we give them those names, just the name of the article, match the name to the article, which is 
what's in the canon of the AMI assistance to infancy as a language material. So you have language materials that are the real article itself, then you have replicas, then you have picture cards, then you have replicas that match picture cards. So we look at all of that and say, what out of what we could offer do we want to give to this youngest child? Because it's such a rich time, they're in that sensitive period for language, taking in new words and holding each of these words as a treasure. Mm. I like the way you called it a precious pearl. So like you're you're putting the chalice there on your little altar and instead of giving a, a slight explanation like we would in level one, you're just saying chalice, giving that precious pearl just the word. Right, but we don't even put it on the altar. We just lift that object out of a box and name it and put mm-hmm. it down in front of the child so they can hold it. So it's, it's a language presentation. If there comes a time when they would like to set it, like it's on an altar table, that's their work. Mm-hmm. So we're not doing that. That would be their discovery themselves at that point. And maybe they will end up doing that and maybe they won't. Maybe that will be something they don't do until they're in the level one atrium Mm -hmm. and they receive that presentation. But we do see them arriving at that point where they spontaneously do that themselves. And a catechist described to me how a young child who particularly loved baking bread in the toddler atrium and always worked with the mass articles, came and opened the box and took out the chalice and went around to every other child in the room saying, the blood of Christ and holding out the chalice. (laughs) And then went back to the table and took the patent and went around and said to all the other children, the body of Christ. Now that's not language that was offered to that child with that material or even with any other presentation in that level atria. But where would she take in this language and that movement of those sacred vessels in the liturgy? So that's her making that connection, that discovery, and having the freedom to do that because she has the material, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very communal. And that's the reason why we would say, why not just offer whatever you're going to offer in the home? Why have an external environment for a child that young? But... Again, that, that's the same answer to the question we have for all the other environments, that it's a personal place of prayer for those children, a place where their prayer is not determined by the rest of their family or their parents. or their. It's a place just for them, where everything is their size. It's for them. So it gives them that independence in their own prayer life. It gives them a, something physical to express what's going on inside of them, which we know from Sophie and Gianna that there is definitely something going on inside of them. Yes, and it's so fascinating. I just listened to this program about babies where they were talking about how they did this study to try and discover how is it that babies acquire language. And there are only certain animals that have the capacity to hear a language either of their own species or another species, such as a parrot, for instance, and then mimic that language. And songbirds are one of these. So they studied songbirds and they found that the movement of the wings lit up in the brain right next to the same area that lights up for language. And that there's a connection between these two, between movement and language, that the way that 
movement is acquired and refined and the way that language is acquired and refined have a similar, I guess, trajectory would be the right, right way to say it, and that this is also true in humans. Um, mm. It's fascinating because language is so complex, but yet we don't teach the young child every word. We don't teach them how to take every step. This is something that they themselves do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we invite, how do we invite them to take that next step, to say that next word? by offering them a prepared environment, an environment that recognizes who they are and meets their needs, that knows what their sensitive periods are, that understands the characteristics of the young child, that knows that they have these religious capacities and needs, even from that moment of conception, that they are in that relationship that they are in a space of prayer. If we think about the, the womb and what it's like, before the child can even hear, they already are in this listening space, mm. this silence, right? Mm. And then as they acquire the ability to hear, which is very young in the womb, what do they begin to hear? The mother's heartbeat the waters of the womb, the, and then the eventually the voices of the parents and music and so forth. But first, they're in that silent listening space, in that relationship with their creator. So they're already in this atrium, this space of prayer, in the best position of prayer. And we we know that even their movements, um, there's studies that show that when the mother puts her body in certain prayer positions, such as kneeling, the infant in her womb mimics that movement. Wow, I've never heard of that. That's amazing. So they're very sensitive to all of those things, to movement, to language. But it sounds like the infant toddler atrium does a really good job of meeting those needs that meeting those specific characteristics of the child to that age child. Well, that's the goal. It's certainly it's an exploration. You know, we know the canon, the Montessori canon of what would you offer to a child that age? And we know the themes of the catechesis. And now the work is to really observe to offer to offer to them and to observe and there will be that same sort of necessity for a closet of humility you know does everything we offer is it a match or are there things that we put out and realize they don't need those really looking for what is most essential mm-hmm. so if i were to walk into an infant toddler atrium what would i see that would look similar or different from when i walk into a level 1 atrium you'd see a prayer table So if we think of our main four materials in a level one atrium, you would see a good shepherd. It would just be a little bit bigger and chunkier, less sheep, (laughs) but you would see those two, but you wouldn't see a baptism corner or a model altar. Instead, you'd have these boxes with those articles in them. You would also see something that that takes up quite a big space in the room that you wouldn't see in and this depends on space to one of these materials, but you would potentially see a movement material such as the bridge. If there wasn't space, you might not see that. But ideally, you would always see a communal eating table. 
communal meal table, which means every child in that atrium is able to sit down and have a meal at the same time together. So we know that we don't serve snack in a level one, two, or three atrium. The purpose of this is not just because these young children might be hungry during the time they're there, but it's really that communal place where they share together. So it's imaging that Eucharistic meal, mm. but it's a shared meal with those children. And this is one of the things that most builds that community amongst them, because mm. what, is, what happens in their home, hopefully they're, they're eating meals with their family. They're seeing what this is like, but this is a meal where they're sitting down together after having prepared the table and even the food itself and seeing how they can serve one another. And one of the things they love to do is clear the table and wash the dishes. So all that practical life mm -hmm. is such a big part of this. And it's so satisfying to them to have that happen. And because if one child starts setting the table and another one sees, they all end up there, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the things that creates this community is their own desire to come together, not just because it's food, but because it's that communal experience. Mm -hmm. a, a person I used to work with used to say that Jesus built community through meals, like he would eat with people and build community with them. So us in ministry should do the same. It's like eat with people to build community. And that sounds like you're meeting the need of that infant toddler by community they need community they are communal at that age and so you're you're meeting the need by bringing them all together to eat together that's really cool it is yeah it's so i heard you mention the good shepherd and the articles of the mass like the chalice and the patent and the articles of baptism and a prayer table are there any other bible or liturgy presentations or materials that you have in the infant toddler atrium there are so, for instance, if you think through your level one themes, what could we offer in terms of geography, prophecies, infancy narratives, paschal narratives? So we've we've looked at each of those areas and thought, what is most essential and um, what could we offer to the littlest ones? And we found that one of the important things is not just what should we offer, what's most essential, but how we offer it makes a difference. So, for instance, to put out an infancy narrative with more essential verses, but instead of putting it on the shelf and taking it off the shelf and showing it to one child at a time, giving it a designated table for a period of time so the children can just go sit down and it's already there. Mm. And then retiring it to the shelf and putting out the next one, depending on how many we offer, again, to give it that bigger invitation, if you will, you know, it's there, it's ready for them, it's at a table, to have a prayer card making table. So hopefully that's something we see in every level atria, but the little ones love this just as much as the older ones. But of course, when they make a prayer card, it looks different than a level three child with their beautiful calligraphy. But what we're also finding is that even if they're just pasting an image on a piece of paper, or the catechist is writing a one word prayer card for them and then they're decorating it with an image that they often reach for the writing implement held by the catechist. There's this recognition of I can do that work myself. Mm -hmm. I can write myself. 
And at that age, they have perfect pencil grip too. Mm -hmm. So what writing implement can we offer when that happens? So we don't put it into their hand and give a writing presentation per se, but if they reach for that, is there something we can offer them so that we can decrease and they can increase and that becomes their work? What about being a catechist? What about that part of the environment? What does it look like to be a catechist for the infant toddler? Well, I think it requires the greatest discipline. <laughs> to be with the youngest requires the greatest discipline. Because it's not about, you know, we're so used to, I have all these things to offer, all these things to teach. And we know that we need to be restrained with every age, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's particularly true with the littlest ones. So true, in fact, that it's not about teaching them. It's more about modeling for them until they pick it up themselves. So it's constant modeling. And much more than anything, it's really cultivating the art of observation. Because that's the only way we know what they need next, because they're so pre-verbal, the younger they are. And how do they show us who they are and what they need? It's almost these micro expressions of the face and the eyes. It's important to really learn to observe their body language, but also their face and their eyes. To be willing to sit back until we know they need us. So for instance, how would you know they need you? Maybe crying or maybe physically crawling or walking over. Mm -hmm. But they also might just look at you. Holding back until we're really needed. And then even then, they might end up helping each other or finding a solution themselves. So we expect to see, just like we would for the three to six-year-old, we expect to see wandering. But is wandering some sort of aimless, I'm just wandering because I need somebody to attach me to something? Sometimes, but it's also, we expect it. It's also the child moving through the room listening for that invitation, looking for that invitation. And this is particularly th true of the littlest ones. So for a three to six-year-old, there are things that we wouldn't show them right away, right? So if they're looking for something and they take something off the shelf that they might not receive for a few years, we might show them how to dust it or name it for them, but we wouldn't necessarily have to give that presentation in that moment. For the toddlers, it's different. This is such an incarnate way that we expect them to be able to take anything off the shelf and work with it. So that calls on us to really prepare that environment with that in mind, because very often their early work is right at the shelf itself. Mm -hmm. They may take four or five things off the shelf, you know, and leave them scattered throughout the room as they move around. So what you see at the beginning of the year versus what you'd see at the end or even in their second year in that environment is radically different depending on what they see modeled. So restoring that order is the work of the adults initially and then the children begin to do it. And there's always that invitation for them, but there's not that expectation that you will sit still until I've given a presentation and then it's your turn. Mm-hmm. So once they reach out to touch something in a presentation, they're in touch with that material. So that's a moment for us to stop and step back and, and let them enjoy it. And then maybe the next moment will come at that time and maybe it will come another day. For instance, flower arranging. You know, Maybe they'd just like to 
hold the flowers and smell them. Maybe they put them in the vase without the water. That doesn't, that's, doesn't matter because they're engaged with the material. So there will come those later moments when they'll realize, oh, I can put some water in there first. <laughs> so forth. This beautiful aged child is so good at seeing the beauty that's right in front of them and just being present with the beauty. And what a prayer that is in itself. Like what you were just saying with the flower arranging, like it's not, it's a, it's a prayer. It's not about each of the steps necessarily at that time. So if the child is just sitting there gazing at the flower or just puts it in the vase, like you just mentioned, um, God, how they, they are experiencing prayer in a moment with God by reflecting on his beauty. They invite us to look again at everything with that great wonder, don't they? Mm. They're a constant invitation to that gift of wonder, the wonder of creation, the gift of who they are and who we are. Again, at every age, we receive more from the child than they receive from us, but particularly the youngest that beautiful gift of wonder and awe. I wonder if that's one of the great mysteries of the kingdom of God that the infant toddler offers us. I think that's very true. In fact, thinking of those kingdom parables, for instance, what is the most essential way we can offer the mystery of those five kingdom parables that we offer in level one? The mustard seed. The child is the mustard seed, aren't they? I mean, the <laughs> brilliance of Sophia and Jonna to offer that to a three-year-old child in, in those three moments, knowing that this is exactly what the child's living at that age, around two, two and a half, three, you know, that, that bursting forth of their own dominion and this me do it, and this newfound independence, this power that's in the seed. Mm -hmm. So they're literally living these parables. So that's what we offer them, our materials to help them live the work of those kingdom parables, hence the baking of bread, for instance. And then how much more will that be carved into their heart and their body and their mind when they hear the parable just a few years later? Because their hands have done that work. They have tasted the fruits of their own labor, of God's creation. They have shared this with one another. I love that. They are living out those parables. They are physically growing like the mustard seed and living out that mystery in a very particular way. That's so cool. You definitely are making me want to serve the infant toddler or co-wonder alongside the infant toddler. If I, if I wanted to do the formation for the infant toddler atrium, Elizabeth, how would I go about doing that? Well, there. Um, first of all, if you look at the CGS USA website under formations, it's called Level T. Mm -hmm. But there are two that are upcoming that will start, you know, as part one, part two. They're usually offered as part one, part two, um, much like the other levels. And one will be in the fall in the greater Northwest, and the other will be in the spring in Arizona at the national office where they have a beautiful toddler atria um, with a space for adults. So if I'm interested in the formation, then I can go onto the website and just keep looking there until there's more concrete days. There's not very many of these eight, of these formations. Is that correct? There aren't um, because there are a limited number of people offering them. So right. that that's 
the main reason. Um, so I just need to keep looking at them. Yes. So if you watch the website, you'll see. Well, Elizabeth, do you have a time in the atrium with the infant toddler that you would like to share with us? Maybe really showed God or maybe really showed, touched your heart as working with the infant toddler in their atrium. I think what touched me the most was my initial experience in this was years and years ago with my nieces and nephews. So when I was five years into teaching, four or five years, and took that assistance to infancy and was in a level two or three catechesis formation for the first time, I asked the formation leader, could I do something with children under the age of three? And she said, well, you've got this Montessori training and you know that catechesis you you could this is what I used to do with my infants sing them a different alleluia every time I changed their diaper and so forth and Mm -hmm. so I started a little atrium Um, I took a year off working full-time for the school and I had to it had to move three different times it wasn't a sustainable long-term thing in my life or in those environments unfortunately but I learned so much and one of the most beautiful experiences was just gathering at the prayer table with them and how simple that was, just brief little moments of singing and coming together in silence, turning the lights off, lighting the candle, relighting it so each one could snuff it at the end. (laughs) Um, But one little girl really taught me that value of of each word being a precious pearl. Well, more than one of them did actually, but, one of my little nieces picked up the patent one day and, and went and showed it to each of the other children, naming it Patton. But before she named it, she'd say their name and then she'd hold it out. Patton, mm-hmm. Patton. And there was a little girl who lived down the street from my sister, which is where we had this first atrium in her basement. And she said, you know, I'm surprised she's agreed to come with her child because They go everywhere in the town together. They usually don't separate that much, but I guess because it's right down the street. So anyway, she came and put her daughter in the atrium. And the next week she came to me and she said, I need to talk to you. And I thought, oh dear, did something already happen? (laughs) And she just said, I want to know what you said about the Holy Bible. Um, Or what did you say about the Holy Bible? And I said, well, let me show you. And I invited her into the room and I lifted the Holy Bible off the prayer table and I named it the Holy Bible and I placed it back on the prayer table. I said, that's all we did. And she said, well, my daughter came home and she went through our house and her father's a musician who works in the um, movie industry. And he had, they had two homes side by side. The other one was his sound studio. And so she spent the whole afternoon going through both of these homes, looking for something and finally found this little Gideon's Bible that her sister had been given in high school and started carrying it everywhere. Mm. She would put it next to her when she ate dinner. She'd have it next to her when she took a bath, when she slept. And they would walk through the town and she would hold it in her hands as they walked through the town. And whenever somebody said, what do you have? She'd say, the Holy Bible. And she did that for quite some time. Every once in a while, I'd check in with her mother. Is she still carrying the Bible around today? <laughs> so the impression that that made, um, anyway, that little group taught me a lot. It was, it was wonderful. I love that. Because you were so essential, it touched that child's heart. That's really beautiful. 
Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all the work that you have done for the infant toddler. You have done so much work and we really appreciate it. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for this time. And thank you to all those generous parents and children and, and our ancestors in this work, so to speak, <laughs> for the gift of this work. Yes, thank you so much. The Good Shepherd and the Child podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. We would like to thank all the contributing members for making this podcast possible. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd or to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening this week. In two weeks, we will have another of our favorite episodes from the last year and a half to share with you. And we will be back with brand new episodes in October of 2021. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.